Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. That was great. I'm going to ask you to stand, please, for the reading of the Word of the Lord. I want to read to you out of John chapter 12, verses 12 through 15. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival, uh, let's quick note here, um, Jerusalem, generally speaking, had twenty-five to 30,000 uh, people in it. Uh, most historical references will say that somewhere between 150 to 250,000 families would flood into Jerusalem and expand its population at this time of the Passover. So you're talking about possibly a potential of anywhere is at a minimum from 250,000 uh, to a million people. So understand that. When it says the next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches, went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, which means save or salvation or God save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Father, I ask your blessing and anointing upon your word and upon our hearts and our minds to receive it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We have been in a series simply entitled, Jesus And we talked initially about Jesus, the teacher, and what did he teach? His primary theme was about the kingdom of God, a new way of living, a new way of being, something that we are born into by being born again by the Spirit of God. He went on, as we said last week, and he was referenced as the Lamb of God. John the Baptist sees him walking by and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Um, he's the Lamb of God, this final sacrifice for sin, especially over Passover when 20,000 lambs would have been slaughtered in the passage of a couple of, uh, in a 24-hour period or so. Um, for sacrifice, he's now referenced as the Lamb of God, the single um, lamb that takes away the sin of the world. And today I want to talk to you about Jesus, uh, the humble king. Um, this is Palm Sunday. I, I'm, I'm sure you're conscious of that. And uh, so just for this, I... I Went out and I, I picked these today off my trees. And um, I have palm trees in my backyard. No, uh, the, these are just here. So um, this would be the day that, that the crowds, massive crowds, um, would have been so caught with the moment that they would have torn down what could have been six-foot-long palms uh, and would have been spreading them out as Jesus came into Jerusalem. So it would have been before he even got to Jerusalem on the pathway and, and road. Imagine what would have been somewhere on the order of, of a minimum 10,000, possibly as many as 100,000 plus people. Imagine them holding these branches and imagine them waving them, you know, to catch the attention stuff. We, we use applause today for the most part. The first time that applause was referenced is 
I think, third century writings. Uh, but prior to that, we don't know what people did. If they did, they applaud. There appears to have been a finger snapping, so they would have done that in appreciation. Somewhere got the idea that, oh, that that works. Did applause, uh, scream, we yell, um, we light off cigarette lighters, go those back and forth. Um, all different expressions that mankind has used to um, express appreciation or excitement over something. For these individuals, it would have been the palm branches. And they were more physical in their expression uh, than even we are today in most cases. Now, this, as we said, is Palm Sunday. And um, as we talk about that, I'm curious as a thought, how many of you have a Catholic background? Just a quick raising of hands. Uh, fairly significant. First service, practically entirely. Um, then you would know that... that, that Oftentimes, I don't know if tradition still holds up, but in the past, uh, you'd come into church, they'd give you a palm, and everyone would have their own palm. <laughs> We're cheap. We got two. You're on your own. <laughs> okay. So, um, th- and they'd have the palms. They'd be actual palm branches a lot of times. And um, later, because they'd been blessed by the priest and all, you can't just throw them out. And so they would burn them and take the ashes from that. And if you were tracking things, then the next year, those are the ashes mixed with you know, holy water and, and oil or something like that that the priest would then assign to put the cross on Ash Wednesday on your forehead. After which you'd go to work and inevitably someone would sit here and go, got something on your forehead. And you say, it's an expression of my faith. You know, it's a talk, it was a statement of repentance. Um, in fact, as the priest puts it on, it usually would quote Genesis 3.19, remember thou art dust and to dust thou shalt return. And Mark 1.15, repent and believe the gospel. And, uh, um, and so it was something that was kind of a very serious type of issue that would be done. And I, I, I find the ceremonial aspects of that, you know, intriguing at least. Um, we're told that in Revelations chapter 7, verse 9, after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, every tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. So guess what, guys? <laughs> You're all going to get your own palm branch eventually, okay? Um, for some reason, we're going to have these up in heaven, and we're going to have a moment of time that we'll be sharing and expressing that. Um, palms symbolized in that time period goodness, well-being, grandeur, steadfastness, but of all things, it meant victory. Coming back from an Olympic game, I might carry a palm with me as my victory thing, among other things. There were laurel branches, but palms as well. In ancient times, they were used also on coins, a lot of coins you'll find them on. Uh, King Solomon had palm branches carved into the doors and into the walls of the temple. And so they're meeting Jesus with these expressions of praise these palm branches for victory and, and grandeur and good fortune. They greet him not as the spiritual Messiah who take away the sins of the world, not the Lamb of God, but they're viewing him as a potential political leader who'd overthrow the Romans. This was how they were approaching him. Before we go too much further on this, I want to draw back attention to something I said a few weeks ago to a few of you. And I said it without explanation. So let me back up in this moment of time when there's a physical expression being offered with palms and hands and everything else like that. I mentioned at the end of the service and had everyone just raise their hands for a moment, however you wanted to to raise them up. Um, And and that was done as an element of praise. 
Um, I forget sometimes that, that a lot of us aren't as versed in Christian worship. So let me explain what that was about. In Psalm 134, verse 2, it says, Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. In Psalm 63, verse 4, it says, So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will what? Lift up my hands. Um, this is one of, of quite a few scriptures that talk about the raising up of hands in worship and in praise. Um, the important issue about, about raising up hands and lifting them up in a, in, a, in a way like this has to go way back to the idea of how we use our hands even yet today. I'm not going to ask how many of you are Italians, but I've dealt with enough Italians to know that um, we use our hands in communication a lot. Uh, we can use our hands as a way of applauding someone. We can use it as a way of, of being war- concerned about someone. Um, we can use it as a way of like, I'm not sure. Uh, um, we can use it as a way of welcome. We shake hands. We do all sorts of different things with our hands. And in the same way, what it's speaking with these passages is that we can take those same hands that are so expressive. See, we think it's just the quietness of our spirit. But we're people of flesh as well. We're, we're people of body and spirit. And there's something about praising God, not just with our lips, not just with, with um, uh, a word or so or a thought, but there's something about standing. There's something about kneeling. There's something about raising our hands that all has to do with worship. Now, there are times, I'll confess, that sometimes you'll find me worshiping like this because I'm completely or deeply uh, contemplating something or processing something. Um, Jewish people will do something called davening. They'll, they'll, they'll move their bodies back and forth like a flickering flame in their worship and their praise. Um, the point being is that the taking of our hands and using those in worship is an appropriate thing. Now, I, I don't think you need to all the time do that. I think you should always be very conscious of who's next to you before you start getting out too much on this. Uh, um, some of you may want to start very simply, as I said before, of just because hands can also mean an issue of surrender. It can mean touchdown. Okay. It can mean celebration. It can mean surrender. It can mean humility. It can mean I know that I'm in need, and only you can provide that need for me, God. All that has to do with hands. And I wanted to highlight that because what's happening in this moment we're reading about is people who are used to physically expressing themselves in worship, and they're doing that. The palm branches, the applause, whatever the case may be. And while we don't do the palm branches really around here <laughs> on a regular basis, we do applaud, or we do raise our hands in worship, or even in celebration or exaltation, or just in submission. And I wanted to kind of back that up a little bit because I kind of slapped into that the last time I talked to you about it. But this goes much deeper. This passage, I want to break into two sections because these two sections of John, uh, of, of John actually have reference to um, uh, two different scriptures that are tied into this. This first one um, is being referring to, it's talking about blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, I need to probably make clear one other thing. There was something at the time of the of the Passover that the Jewish people would have done. This was not an option. They sang six psalms as part of the Passover meal. 
on a regular basis. They were referred to as the Egyptian Halals. And there were six Psalms, Psalms 113 through 118. They're referred to as the Egyptian Halals, not because you sang in Egyptian, but because they would reference or were tied into the Passover to the freedom from Egyptian slavery and the bondage that they had in Egypt. And so they would sing uh, these six Psalms during the Passover meal at different times, finishing at the very end with Psalm 118. And when they would do Psalm 118, they would sing the last nine verses twice. There was something about that that was important to them. So you need to know that because as we look at this now and realize that's what's in their heads, these hundreds of thousands of people coming into Jerusalem, and their mind is that they're already singing what they would have sung every time they come to this of these six psalms, and the preeminent one is what you finish with, the climax, Psalm 118. And so when we sit here and we read the passage like we read last week, and we've said it every time practically at communion, we finish by saying that, that they, they sang a hymn and then went out. And so we sing a song. And you always wonder, well, what hymn would they have sung? And, you know, maybe holy, holy, holy. No, what they would have done. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. No, that wasn't written either. What would they have sung? What, what hymn? Well, here's the answer for that. The halals would have been sung. And so the 118 psalm would have been the last thing sung. And that's important for you to understand because there's lots of messianic stuff, not messy stuff, messianic, which has to do Messiah. Okay, Jesus is wrapped into Psalm 118. And this would have been on the minds of people as they're coming in. And this is what have been what the last thing that Jesus would have sung with his disciples on the way out. It's probably written by um, David. And I'm not going to read you the entire psalm, but I'm going to read to you the very first four verses at least. I don't have it up on the screen. But I want you to understand because the psalm begins and ends with this line, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his love endures forever. And then it's emphasized, the next three verses. Verse two, let Israel say his love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, the priests, his love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, what? Endures forever. So there's this emphasis of the dependability, the faithfulness of the love of God. Now I'm going to skip through. It talks about being hard-pressed. It talks about the Lord being with them in the trials and triumphing over enemies. And then it goes to verse 8. It says, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. Jesus is about, he's, he's, he, this is, he's in the triumphal entry, and these halals would have been in his mind. This is before the Last Supper, but these halals would have been in his mind, of course, too. Everyone's cheering him. Everyone's praising his name and lifting him up. And in his mind, I think there had to have been this thing of saying, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. Never trust in the crowd. A crowd is one step from a mob. And Jesus knew that. So in his mind, as this is going on, I'm sure he's quoting the scripture, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in these humans who in a few more days are going to say, crucify me when they realize that I'm not the political person they want. Verse 9 says, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes like King Herod or, or maybe Pontius Pilate. Goes on and talks about different trials and the faithfulness of God and, and different aspects of that. And then it goes to verse 19 and it starts to get really interesting because it says, Open for me the gates of righteous, of the righteous, 
and I'll enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is referencing the gates and the place of Jerusalem, the temple itself. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. And then verse 21, I'll give you thanks for you answered me for you have become my salvation. 22, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, this passage here is a strong and important statement in the New Testament, understanding of the person and work of Jesus. Jesus quoted this passage himself in Matthew chapter 21, Mark chapter 12, Luke chapter 20. Peter quoted it in reference to Jesus in Acts 4.11. Paul alluded to this verse in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, and Peter also referred to it in 1 Peter chapter 2. Seven, eight. In fact, there is no text in the Old Testament that is quoted more in the New Testament than this passage we're talking about here. The stone the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. So it's referencing an Old Testament text, but it is being used in the New Testament. Sidebar here for a moment. And remind me where I'm at so we'll come back to this, okay, if I get lost, all right? I've heard and read several things recently that I don't understand. Um, there are some, some pastors who have been saying, and I understand why they're saying it, I just don't agree, that um, we don't really need the Old Testament. We can detach that off. It's more about the New Testament. It's more about Jesus. They don't want people to feel get confused with the Old Testament um, because of, of the subtleties of that involved. Now, the problem with that is the Old Testament, Jesus quotes the Old Testament. We can't say it's not relevant. It is relevant. I've heard it go even further. Let's not get hung up on the Old Testament or the New Testament, the Bible at all, because it's really just about Jesus. And, and we want to lift up Jesus and not get hung up with the worship of, of the Scripture or something else of that nature. And they'll say that a lot of times, I think, to try to make Jesus less offensive because if you really read some of the things he says in the New Testament and things prophesied in the Old Testament, you can find that Jesus can be pretty offensive. And so they want to divorce that off. But if you divorce that off, how do you even know who Jesus is anymore? we are told who he is in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. By separating off those things entirely, you don't even know who you're worshiping anymore or what's involved anymore. We need the Old and the New Testament. Both the Old and the New Testament are relevant. They have importance still to this day and are not to be ignored. That's my suggestion. That's also a really good time for those of you that are really knowledgeable of the Word of God to sit here and say an amen really loud and expressively, okay? There you go. Yeah, we'll work on that. So, back to where I was saying. This passage of Scripture that Jesus is quoting of the Old Testament is used more than any place else in the New Testament. It's in this 118 psalm that is this halal that would have been sung at the Passover on the minds of everybody as they would have been going along on this. And um, it, it, it goes together here further. Uh, now, um, Luke does make a minor adjustment when Peter quotes it in 411. Um, instead of the, the saying the stone the builders rejected uh, has become the capstone, Luke changes it because Peter would have said it this way to try to make a point. The stone you builders rejected, um, and he's trying to emphasize that the, the leaders of that time and what they'd done in regards to Jesus. Now, a chief cornerstone, uh, or the capstone, was an important stone that, hold, that held two rows of stones together in a corner. Um, it stabilizes the stones uh, at the foundation or elsewhere. 
An old writer, commentator, pastor named Spurgeon said this, quote, Now he is the bond, meaning Jesus, the bond of the building, holding Jew and Gentile in firm unity. This precious cornerstone binds God and man together in wondrous amity or friendship, for he is both in one. He joins earth and heaven together, for he participates in each He joins time and eternity together, for he was the man of few years, yet he is the ancient of days, wondrous cornerstone. He references him in that place and in that time. So when we look at these passages, we find that that, that there's something really important about this 118. It goes on further. And again, I remind you, this would have been in the minds of all these believers preparing to sing it or have been preparing or even singing it on the way into worship and on the way up to Jerusalem. Verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now you're beginning to understand John 12. Great crowd comes for the festival, heard Jesus on his way. They take palm branches, they get physical, they shout Hosanna, God save us, or salvation, and they say, What? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What are they doing? We're singing the halals. We're, and there's something about this, and we're recognizing it. And so we're speaking that into this moment. It was an expression of the Passover, recognizing something unique was happening. Blessing. There's a blessing for this figure of great importance who's coming in the name of the Lord and is going to set us free in some way. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The main part, part of this ceremony of song is to welcome God, deliver through the open gates into the holy city. And there's a blessing from the singers as he approaches the the temple or the house of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, our salvation, our liberator. We have a strange and interesting prediction that was fulfilled precisely. This deliverer was to be welcomed with open gates, Psalm 118, 19. Hosannas, that salvational praise in Psalm 118, verse 25. And blessings, we bless you. Psalm 118, 26 that we just read. Yet he is and was the same chief cornerstone that was going to be rejected, Psalm 118, 22. These exact phraseologies comes and applies to Jesus, welcomed as a deliverer and a Messiah on Palm Sunday, and then rejected and crucified only a few days later. It's an amazing mixture of things. Now, as we've looked at this passage and we see how 118 applies to this and how this would have been the last thing Jesus sang on the way out. This is what people were seeing, preparing, coming in. All these things would have been in their minds. Blessed is he whose name comes in the name of the Lord. This next one, verses 14, 15, Jesus found a young donkey, sat on it, as is written. Another reference to the Old Testament. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. And so now we're seeing another thing that's being referenced here. This particular passage is referencing, or in regards to, rather, um, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It's an Old Testament prophecy in prophet. And in this one, he says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. He is salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey. And in case you don't get the point, 
he really drives it home on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, okay? We're talking a donkey here, all right? We're talking a colt like a young donkey, but he's a donkey's donkey donkey, okay? And that's how he's coming riding in on this donka 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 donkey, okay? So the writer's driving this home. Now, this is kind of strange even in its own way because if a king is going to enter into his place in those days, no offense, men, but you don't come driving up on a Prius, okay? You get your basic Escalade or Cadillac or Navigator, and you come cruising in with your Humvee to everyone's cheers. You don't come driving in on a Chevy Cruze. You come in on a horse like Alexander the Great, who always rode a great big white stallion. Or, or uh, um, Julius Caesar, when he won uh, uh, over the Gauls and he's coming into Rome, his parade lasted three days. And he had all this treasure and all these slaves that he brought with him, captives, and it was a big celebration for three days. And, and he was either on a horse or actually more likely he was in a chariot. He wasn't even riding a horse. He was being pulled by a horse. And everyone's cheering him and praising him and lifting him up. This is how kings came. This is how the kings are supposed to enter in and be a part of things. Horses were big, they were magnificent, they were powerful, they're dangerous, they're intimidating. Years ago, when my oldest son was two years old, and uh, um, actually, I take that back, he would, have been, he would have been three years old, and his brother was just two months old. So Paxton's two, Tal is, is three, and, and Renee and I, we'd all gone as a family to Boston, and we stayed in a hotel just across the, the, the uh, roadway from uh, Faneuil Hall. And we'd spent the evening at Faneuil Hall, and it was getting late, and kids are getting tired. And so there's a, a horse and buggy thing there. And we're saying, you know, we've never done the horse and buggy route. We're going we're gonna to take a horse and buggy. I asked the guy. I said, hey, I said, I'm talking to a negotiator. I said, can, you, can we do the ride? And maybe we should just finish up our hotel. It's like, you can see it from here. Can you just drop us off at the hotel? No, sir, I, I cannot do that. I can't cross that road. It's not, I, it's not right to do that or illegal, whatever the case may be. And while we're talking in this, suddenly Tal's going, who's three years old, goes, ow, ow, ow. Now, this is pretty amazing because what had happened is the dog, the, the, the horse had shifted, several tons of horse had shifted and stepped on his foot. And so this three-year-old is not screaming, Aah! he's not rolling, he's not frothing, he's not, he just goes, ow, ow, ow. <laughs> and we, 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 oh my gosh, the horse, move the horse. And the horse goes, oh, okay, and it was over a bit. And, and suddenly his, his ankle starts to swell up. We're thinking we've got a broken ankle. I mean, it was scary for a bit. And I'm, I'm, I'm turning to the guy, and I said, can we? And he says, I'll take you right to your hotel. Suddenly, all the rules were off. <laughs> this guy was seeing lawsuits. I was seeing dollar signs. No, we're just... <laughs> so, so we get back to the hotel. We, we ice it down real good. And uh, God's blessing and a miracle, whatever, it wasn't broken. And by the next day, actually, it was down, and he was able to walk. My point being is horses are intimidating. Donkeys aren't. Donkeys are not intimidating. I'm on a horse. I'm doing the king thing. Jesus is on a donkey. (laughs) 
you got two very different images being established here. And, and this was prophesied in the Old Testament. Now he's entering Jerusalem, the mountain where Abraham was going to sacrifice his son. And God stops him and provides and says something else. And we know now that it was going to be God's own son on that same place. You got sixty to 100,000 people praising, shouting, yelling all over the place. Raising all these, 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 these uh, branches and, 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 and waving them left and right. Everywhere else that Jesus went, every time he did miracles and people wanted to lift him up, he said, don't tell anyone about it. Don't say this was done. He would quiet down. He'd avoid the crowds. But this one time, something's different. And while a normal king would come in with a great procession and a horse and the whole thing, he's coming in quietly and humbly. There's a humility to our king. There's an approachability to our king. There is a brokenness in how he approaches out, not to come in triumph and dictatorship, but to come in sacrifice and in brokenness. This same humility is to be carried by us as believers now, I'm going to read you something, and, and, and my wife was a little upset with this, but I'll, I'm going to read it still. Oh, she isn't upset. She just thinks I'm, I'm maybe stretching things a bit. So be patient and just understand the heart of this, all right? It was a psalm for Palm Sunday. King Jesus, why did you choose a lowly donkey to carry you to ride in your parade? Have you no friend who owned a horse, a royal mount with spirit for a king to ride? Why choose a donkey, small, unassuming beast of burden, trained to plow, not carry kings? King Jesus, why did you choose me, a lowly, unimportant person, to bury you in my world today? It's you and me. I'm poor and unimportant, trained to work, not carry kings, let alone the king of kings, and yet you've chosen me, you, to carry you in triumph in this world's parade. King Jesus, keep me small so that all may see how great you are. Keep us humble so all may say, blessed is he who cometh in the name of the Lord. Not what a great ass he rides. Yeah, you understand why she said it was probably not a good idea, huh? I'll be honest, I get caught by that. Christians today have been painted as so arrogant, and I don't understand it. Of all people, we're supposed to be the most humble. We've been saved by grace, not by works. Our king offers himself as a sacrifice. He comes riding on a donkey in humility. How dare we ever raise ourselves up to any degree of arrogance? We should disappear so they see only him. So, he'd always deflected all the time. But this time, something's different. What's different? He's coming to Jerusalem. This is the holy city. This is that special place for Abraham. This is the last supper. This is the crucifixion. It's all coming to a head right here. It's the climax of everything, but it's God's special place and city, and he is the king of that place. And even though they don't fully recognize it, there's something that even creation would be shaken by this issue. And so for the first time, he doesn't stop people in the, pot, pro, con, uh, in the process of their praise. And even though he's not coming with a stallion ramping up or, or a chariot, he's coming in this lowly fashion. 
Everyone's breaking loose. And in Luke chapter 19, verse 37, it says, When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they'd seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're getting out of hand. His response, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, what'll happen? Stones will cry out. This is the one time that Jesus couldn't hold things back. There was something about the king coming into his own. There was something about God's presence into that holy city in the person of Jesus Christ. There was something about the Lamb of God coming for the sacrifice, something so powerful, so monumental, so galactically, universally powerful that if the people stayed quiet and stayed mum, the rocks would have freaked right out. The creation itself was recognizing its creator. There was something powerful beyond any moment there that was going to take place. Let me say this. To the side, Satan hates worship. When we worship God, when our focus and attention is on God, then sin is not in our eyes. Distractions, all the things that can take us down in that moment of time, and Jesus is lifted up. It's such a powerful moment. Satan hates worship. Even it's the contemplative type that's consciously moving away, or if it's a simple submission, or if it's a full-throated celebration of some type or another, whatever, when our eyes are on Jesus, when we're recognizing who he is and we lift him up for who he is, demons just fall off. They can't handle it. Now understand this. As all this is happening, 118th Psalm is continuing to go through the mind of Jesus. Think of that and realize that on that Last Supper, after he's there, they would have read and sang that psalm and then they would have sung the last nine verses twice as a refrain. So they would have finished everything and said, I'll give you thanks for you answered me. You've become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected, Jesus is singing with the disciples, has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. It is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done this in this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. And after everything had been said and done, after it all had been sung and worked out, these last verses, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God. He's made a light shine on us with boughs in hands, palm branches. Join in the festal, the festive procession up to the very horns of the altar of sacrifice. And in these last two verses, you are my God and I will praise you. You are my God and I'll exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever.
gathered and crossed the valley to the Garden of Gethsemane. I wanted you, and I believe the Lord wanted you, to have a deeper understanding of Palm Sunday than perhaps you've ever had before. As you understand the richness rooted in Psalm 118 and the Halals, as you understand Zechariah 9, 9, and what all these things would have meant, then my hope is that you approach today and this whole week as a, as, a, as a time of celebration and praise and worship and contemplation in a way that you have never approached it before. How dare we sit still? They just thought they were honoring a political guy. We now stand on the other side of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If we can't find something in that to praise him, what is left? Pray with me. Father, we come before you one week before Easter. There were those that shouted your praise and you didn't stop them because creation itself would have screamed out at the moment. Now, Lord, we stand on the other side of that momentous time of of sacrifice and resurrection. We don't see you as a political figure. We are not caught with the politics. As important as those may be at times, but we are caught first and foremost with a humble king, one who is approachable, one who comes riding on a donkey, the colt of a donkey, a donkey. And Lord, this morning, I pray that we'd come to understand what true worship really means. That we'd have an understanding of the intricate depths of your own pain and thoughtfulness and intentionality over the time we're talking of. This morning, Lord, let let this concept of a new way of worship and understanding begin with us this morning is my prayer. Someday, you're going to get your own palm. Today, no. So you make do with what you got until that time. That's the breath in our lungs. That's the way we hold our bodies, either in kneeling or lifting our hands in exaltation. Don't judge somebody. If they're being contemplative in in worship or if they're going for a full touchdown, just be conscious of who's on either side of you. But as you approach this week, this final week before celebrating Easter, consider it. Maybe read all of the 118th. Think about what Jesus and the guys were thinking about at that time as they're going out. Or better yet, read all six of the Hallel's. Take time and meditate on those. Go back into Zechariah. Look up some of the old prophecies. But prepare to worship next week. I I, I, want to see these walls melt, okay? And realize that with all joking, kidding aside, Christ has chosen us donkeys to carry him into this world. But the attention was never meant to be upon us. And it should never be with arrogance.
It's got to be with a simplicity. For we stand by grace. Father, I pray that you'd guide us in this week, that you'd bring us to points of deep contemplation and brokenness, but also of great heights of celebration and joy. Guide us in these things. Teach us your ways, we pray, the ways of the kingdom. And we will praise your name loudly, quietly, passionately. We will praise your name, the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the church said,